there's a sifting happening. If you, as you've watched what has happened and it has been happening in this country and throughout the world over the last couple of years, it feels like a sifting, almost like a test for believers and followers of Jesus Christ, a sorting out, so to speak. Our country and the world continue to flounder and fall apart as the desire is to legalize unrighteousness and seek to criminalize righteousness. The culture continues to change and churches and believers are right in the middle of it all. Yes, it seems as if there's a sifting, as if the Lord is sifting and sorting and separating to see who we are, where we are, and where we stand. Are we who we claim to be? It's as if we have a choice to make a decision. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, Moses speaks the word of God to the Israelites, saying, See, I have set before you life and death, blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. In Joshua 24, Joshua says, If it is dis disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As we look at God's word, we see very clearly there are always just two choices. In J. Adams' book, A Call to Discernment, he writes, From Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, with its two trees, one allowed, one forbidden, to the eternal destiny of the human being in heaven or in hell, the Bible sets forth two and only two ways, God's way and all others. Well, this morning we're going to look at two gates, two paths, two destinations. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29, just an amazing passage of the words that Jesus spoke shortly after giving the Sermon on the Mount. As we study through this morning, we're going to look at the words of Jesus as he speaks the most terrifying words that anyone would ever hear the most terrifying words that anyone could ever hear. We'll look at the gates and paths, the good fruit and the bad fruit, false prophets and false teachers, two foundations and the two destinations and much more. Get ready to dig in. Hope you have your Bibles ready. This is a fascinating passage of scripture that requires and demands our full attention and response. If you would stand as I read Matthew seven thirteen through 29. Matthew seven thirteen through 29. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come in to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We just uh, pray that you would be glorified through your word as we look at it here, as we study it. May your word go forth, Lord. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, first, before we look at what Jesus is saying here, we want to look back and kind of see what took place before this. As we look back, we see... Uh, that just before these words, Jesus spoke the words in the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew 5. We also want to look at who Jesus was speaking to and see that this is a crowd of, a peop a crowd of people whom uh, he is speaking to appear not only to be his disciples, but also a crowd. Bible.org describes his audience here as not just his close disciples, but other disciples, apparently a large number of them and also a multitude from a distance listening to Jesus here, even though his words were directed to his disciples. In Matthew 5 here, Jesus spoke of how a follower or a believer in him is to be one poor in spirit. This is not someone who just feels sad for himself, kind of a oh, woe is me type person, but the correct interpretation is one that who is poor in spirit is one that understands his spiritual poverty his complete helplessness without Christ. We see in verse 4, he is one who is blessed because he mourns. Chapter 5, verse 4, he mourns. What is he mourning over? He mourns over his sin. He mourns his sin. So we see here one who understands his spiritual poverty and helplessness without Christ. And he mourns and hates his sin. And he realizes that because Christ has forgiven him of all of his sins, he is then to be a person who is meek and gentle, verses 5, 6, and 7. And realizing all that he has been forgiven of, he is blessed to be meek and gentle toward others. And in verse 6, he hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He is merciful to others, remembering that Christ was merciful to him and forgave him much. We then see that this person is a peacemaker and is blessed to be persecuted for Christ's name. All this is important to go through as we come to the passage in Matthew 7, 13 through 29. So turn back to, again, Matthew 7, 13. You may have noticed some things in this section, interesting things. There are two gates here, the wide and the narrow, two ways or paths, the wide and the narrow, two groups of people, the many and the few, two destinations, one that leads to destruction or hell, and one that leads to life, eternal life. We also see here two trees, two fruit, two foundations, the rock and the sand, and two results, security for the one who builds on the rock and destruction for those who build on the sand. We're going to see here that there are two ways and that there is a big difference between a narrow path follower and a person on the wide path. There is everything to gain and everything to lose depending on which path you are on. We also see those on the wide path don't know 
they are headed to destruction until it's too late. We actually see in this passage clearly Jesus states three times the difference between the person on the wide path and one on the narrow path, and also the contrast of what one says and what one does. But now let's start right at the beginning as we go through this passage, and we look at the very first word that Jesus spoke here, enter. Verse 13, enter. We notice that this is a command from Jesus. The command is to enter through the narrow gate. We notice here that Jesus doesn't say, would you like to enter? Or would you please enter? Or maybe it would be so nice if you would enter the narrow gate. It's not a question here from the Lord. It's clearly a command. Enter. And when we have a command, we have two choices. We either obey or disobey. Let's look at the concept, though, of the things that Jesus said, um, the fact that this is a command. We'll go back a little bit in Matthew at some of the things. You don't have to turn back here, but um, Jesus said before uh, he speaks here in Matthew 4.19, Jesus said to Simon and Andrew, follow me. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. It's not, please follow me, or hey, guys, what do you think about this idea? You want to follow me? It's not a question. It's a straight command. Follow me. Matthew 6.25, do not be worried. Matthew 7.1, uh, 7, do not judge. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Matthew 9.9, 9, to the tax collector, Matthew, follow me. Emphasize there with an exclamation point. Matthew 9.13, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. We are commanded. I could go on here, but the point at the start of Matthew 7.13 is that we are commanded to enter through the narrow gate. Now let's look specifically at the narrow gate. What is this gate and why is it narrow? Well, the gate is Jesus Christ, Jesus. The only way to be saved, the only way unto eternal life is through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door or gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. The way to eternal life is by faith alone in Christ alone. Narrow. It's narrow. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Narrow, one way only. Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The world hates that message. Just a side note here. The world hates the fact that there is one way. As believers in Christ, our heart is that we love it, that he provided that way. He's a loving, gracious God that longs for us to turn to him. We look at the narrow way and we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. Back again to Matthew 7:13, the narrow gate here is Jesus Christ. It's narrow because he's the only way to salvation and the forgiveness of sin and eternity in heaven. Now let's look at the wide gate. The wide gate in Matthew 7:13 gets right to it here. The wide gate and the broad or wide way represent all false religions. It's really important to understand this. All false religions of works and self-righteousness with no single way, no single way. That's why the path is wide. You can fit all of your beliefs on the wide path, but the wide path leads to destruction, hell and not heaven. And there really are only two religions, only two, the true of Christ alone by faith alone and all others, 
All other beliefs, all other beliefs contain some form of human accomplishment in them, something you have to do to help yourself make it, some form of works required to earn salvation. That's the wide path. Two gates, two paths. Then there's divine, uh, there's divine accomplishment, the only way through what God did. Divine accomplishment, the only way through what God did. And there's all others, all other beliefs that fit easily, plenty of room on the wide path. Again, all other religions or beliefs except faith alone through Christ alone are false religions. And these are the people on the wide path. They accept everything and everyone. And by the way, I think it's important to note here, both gates point to heaven. Both point to heaven. Um, the many people on the wide path aren't there because the sign said hell this way. No one follows a sign that points to hell. Both signs point to heaven, and only one gets there. We'll see here at the end of verse 13 that the wide way leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Many. And then if we jump ahead to verse 22, we see the word many again, and the many here are thinking they should have eternal life too. So they took the wide path thinking it would lead them to eternal life. We'll look more of that in, uh, in, excuse me, into that in a bit. Let's look at the word uh, few here. It's, a, it's an important word, few, in verse 14. Just looked at the many, and now let's look at the few. Verse 14, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Few? Few are saved? What is this? Just a few? If you could turn in your Bibles to Luke 13, 23 through 30. Luke 13, 23 through 30. <clears throat> Jesus here talking, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, is that word again, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but, you, but yourselves being thrown out, and they will come from east and west and from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Many in verse Luke 13, 24, there it is again, will not enter. Few will be saved. <clears throat> John MacArthur in his commentary said, The question of, Lord, are there just a few who are saved, may have been prompted by a number of factors. The great multitudes that had once followed Christ were subsiding to a faithful few, John 6, 66. Great crowds still came to hear, but committed followers were increasingly scarce. Moreover, Christ's message often seemed designed to discourage the half-hearted, and he himself stated that the way is so narrow that few find it. This contradicted the Jewish belief that all Jews, except for tax collectors and other notorious sinners, would be saved. Christ's reply once again underscored the difficulty of entering at the narrow gate. 
After the resurrection, only 120 disciples gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem and only about 500 in Galilee, unquote. In Matthew 22:14, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. In the parable that Jesus told just before this verse, Jesus tells of a king who sends out his servants to gather the wedding guests to the wedding feast, but those invited refuse to come. Some are too busy with their own worldly pursuits. Some refuse because they are hostile to the king, and then the king sends out his servants to anyone they can find. And Jesus concludes the parable by saying, many are called, but few are chosen. Again, we see the few and the many in Matthew 13, 1 through 9, as Jesus tells the parable of the seed and the sower. There's four soils in this parable, four soils, beside the road, the rocky places, the thorns, and the good soil. The word of God, the seed is spread. It hits four different soils of the human heart, and only one of the four takes root and produces fruit, only one. Few are saved. Few are saved. Many go their own way, the wide way. They choose not to follow the narrow way, but take the wide road to destruction. Again, John 6, 66 through 69, many walk away. It said, many withdrew and did not follow him anymore. Few are saved. We're going to get to the characteristics of the wide path person and those on a narrow path of a narrow path follower. But first, let's look at the section of the false prophets back again to Matthew 7. <clears throat> Matthew seven fifteen through 20. We don't want to look past this word in 15, beware. Beware. Be wary. Be alert. Be discerning. False teachers and prophets are everywhere. They promote the wide way, the wide path. That's why they're mentioned right here after Jesus is talking about the wide and the narrow way. False teachers promote the wide way. They preach a false gospel. Be aware, listen. The gospel they preach is usually one that doesn't talk about sin at all. That would be sad and depressing. Don't talk about sin. It's all good. We're all going to make it. God just wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. And oh, if you'll just send your money then God will get you what you want. And if you don't get blessed by God, then it's your fault, right? It's your fault. Because either you didn't send enough money or you didn't have enough faith to believe that God could do it. And just a side note on false teachers, I think it's a good idea to turn off the TV evangelists or be very careful of what you, what you hear on there. So how do we know a false prophet? It's difficult as we read here in verse 15. They look like sheep. They look like they belong to the flock, but, in, but inside they are ravenous wolves. They actually deceive by impersonating true shepherds, and they promote the wide way. In Wycliffe's commentary, it says that false prophets claim to guide believers, but really practice deception. In the Moody commentary, it reads that a false prophet does evil and teaches rotten doctrine. Then in verse 16 and 17, how do we know or how can we identify a false teacher? by their fruit. They are shown by their fruit. Examine their lives. Take a good close look at their lives. They produce bad fruit and false teachers manifest wickedness. I worked closely with a man years ago, a lot of good things about him. He knew the word and could speak and preach well, but when things didn't go his way, he'd explode into a hot rage and start accusing those he felt were against him. Bad fruit. Stay away from people like that. But we need to examine their lives 
and examine what they say. Charles Spurgeon once said, Can you judge your creatures? No, but I can know them by their fruits. I do not judge them or condemn, condemn them. They judge themselves. I have seen their sins go beforehand to judgment, and I do not doubt that they shall follow after. I think the quote here about someone's bad conduct shown throughout their life, that uh, another quote may have come from that, that saying, maybe you've heard this before, about uh, a person of bad conduct, they, saying, I wouldn't want to be handcuffed to him when he died. First oh. John 4, 1 through 6, it says, we're to test every spirit. We need to obey sound teaching and test and examine everything. If it sounds goofy or off, hold it up to Scripture. It's going to be hard to identify the counterfeit if you don't know the real thing. If you don't know the real, the real thing. I've heard it said that to find counterfeit money, the detectives don't study the counterfeit. That's hard to do. It's always changing, always trying to stay one step ahead. They study the real thing. We're not going to be able to see the counterfeit, the false teaching, unless we know the real thing. We must know God's word. If we study and know God's word, then we will be able to identify the false teaching. When we hear it, we must know God's word. Uh, Spurgeon said, if you want truth to go around the world, you must hire an express train to pull it. But if you want a lie to go around the world, it will fly. It is as light as a feather and a breath will carry it. It is well said in the old proverb, a lie will go around the world while truth is pulling its boots on, unquote. God's word is truth. God's word is truth. First Thessalonians 5.21 reads, But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Our, our daughter Josie spent some years in South Carolina and in Davenport, and she was always trying to find a, a good, solid church with a good doctrine, a doctrine and sound preaching. And she came to this conclusion. The better the coffee bar at the church, the worse the preaching and teaching. I don't know if that's always true, but I thought that was pretty funny. And nevertheless, examine everything. Look closely. Hebrews 13.9 says, Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. People who are on the wide path, it's important. People who are on the wide path are undiscerning. Undiscerning. They lack either the ability to discern or the desire. They just trust everything. It's all good. Don't worry about it. They hear it and believe it. No discernment, no critical thinking. Proverbs 14, 15 says, the naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. What a great verse. The naive believes everything. Psalm 19, 7 reads, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Scripture, God's word, makes the simple wise. The word simple is interesting. The Hebrew root of the word simple means open and suggests the imagery of an open door, a door left standing open. People today like to be thought of as open-minded. To an Old Testament Jew, that would be the essence of half-wittedness. To say that you have an open mind would be to declare your ignorance. Shut the door. Shut the door. MacArthur writes again that it's neither healthy nor praiseworthy to have a constantly open mind with regard to one's beliefs, values, and convictions. An open door permits everything to go in and out. 
It's the very attitude that makes so many people today vacillating, indecisive, double-minded, unstable in all their ways. They have no anchor for their thoughts, no rule by which to distinguish right from wrong, and therefore no real convictions. They simply lack the tools and mental acuity to discern or make careful distinctions. That way of thinking is nothing to be proud of." Unquote. MacArthur continues in another quote, "...eliminate the parts of God's word." This is really interesting because we have a lot of preaching in a lot of churches that they're just going to preach specific parts and they're not going to preach other parts. He says here, "...eliminate the parts of God's word that are unpopular or inconvenient." Stay silent on anything that offends the sinner, right? We can't offend anybody. And opposition will decrease. Whoa, yeah, opposition will decrease if you try not to offend anybody. Then he says, but so will truth and discernment and salvation and sanctification and holiness and power. I once uh, knew of a person that someone came to him and... and uh, they were living a life uh, clearly sinning, and uh, they, they wondered if they were going to go to hell. And uh, this person said that he, 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 couldn't, you know, he couldn't tell them that they might, they might go to hell. He couldn't tell them what, what God's word said, which was clearly, clearly in the Bible that this was wrong to do this. Um, and he felt that would be judging. He felt that there would be judging. So he didn't tell this person, and so then they potentially missed out on salvation. They potentially miss out on salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he died. He died for our sins. What an amazing thing that he saved us from those sins. So no opposition there because, you know, he didn't stand for the truth of God's word, but then we lose truth and discernment and salvation and sanctification and holiness and power. We see God's hand can work through the preaching of his word because when it goes forth, it, yeah, it might offend, sure, it might offend, but it's truth. And we're not the ones that's responsible for God's word anyway, really, other than preaching it. God will take care of their heart and how they need to deal with it, but we can't hide from it. Anyway, there are many false teachers out there. We need to hold fast to God's all-powerful, all-sufficient word. It's more than enough. So we test everything we hear, and how do we detect the false teachers? Is by studying God's word, by loving God's word, by delighting in God's word. We don't have to study or watch or pay attention to the false teachers or their wicked doctrine. That's dangerous. We love and study and devote ourselves to God's word. And when we hear something that sounds off, we know. We know because we love and know God's word. Psalm 19 and 119, these are, these are full of all about uh, God's word. 119, 9 through 11, How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word? With all my heart... I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Psalm 1 and 2, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. Here we are in the paths again. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. One here, because one more here because it's important. We're talking about the false teachers in Matthew 7. And the people on the wide path follow them because they are not grounded in God's word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you know this one, all scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon, 
There is dust, dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. Pretty straightforward there. So we must be aware of false teachers, Matthew 7, 15. And the way we do that is by loving God's word. We discipline ourselves to the study of it. It's not just the pastor's job. It's not just the teacher's job. We study it. We love it. We discipline ourselves to the study of it. And then we're prepared when false teaching arises and we confront it with the truth of God's word. Just another note here. Maybe you say that you just don't have a desire to read and study the Bible. Might I suggest that you confess that to God, ask his forgiveness, and ask him to give you a desire for his word. But also begin by disciplining yourself to reading the Bible. Some of the best advice that I heard was from my friend Don Green of Campus Crusade. And Don said, read it. Just read it. I think what he meant was don't let yourself get bogged down with understanding absolutely everything you read, but commit to reading it daily. And I believe God will reveal himself to you more and more through his word, and your discipline will grow into a love for his word. All this to say that as we head back to the text of Matthew 7, that by knowing God's word, we are then able to spot false teachers and false teaching. So we will know the false teachers by their fruit, verse 17 and 18, and they are, they are thrown into the fire, verse 19. Their end is destruction. Now we come to verses 21 through 23. Verses 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We read here the worst words that anyone could ever hear from the Lord. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You look at verse 21 and we see that those who enter heaven, quote, do the will of my Father who is in heaven. They obey the Lord. Obedience. Obedience. It's a word we don't hear too often. John 8, 51 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. We can't miss this point. This is so key. The ones that say and the ones that obey, the sayers and the doers. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Verse 22, many, there's that word again, many, we saw it back in verse 13, many will enter through the wide gate and take the wide path to destruction. They will say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did. One commentary says this, the faith that says but does not do is really barren unbelief. Jesus is not suggesting that works merit salvation, but that true faith will not fail to produce the fruit of good works. If you look at James chapter 1 and 2, for, uh, you'll see precisely the same point. Note that far from being totally devoid of works of any kind, these people were claiming to have done some remarkable signs and wonders. In fact, their whole confidence was in these works. Further proof that these works, spectacular as they might have appeared, could not have been authentic. No one so bereft of genuine faith could possibly produce true good works. A bad tree cannot produce good fruit, unquote. Then in verse 23, we see their condemnation. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These many on the wide path actually practice lawlessness. They love their sin. They never entered 
by the narrow gate, repenting, confessing, and hating their sin. They continued to practice lawlessness, a clear sign of a wide path person. What a horrible ending, though, for those who think they are saved, but in the end, they are cast out. Now we come to the last section, the two foundations. Jesus begins by saying, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a man who built his house on the rock. We see these words and acts on them. This is the person who goes through the narrow gate, is on the narrow path, and now has built his house on the rock. He is the one who obeys. His life is marked by obedience to God's word. In John 14, 21, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. You look back at Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter heaven, but he who does the will of my Father will enter obedience. MacArthur said uh, in another quote, worship is inseparable, I love this quote, worship is inseparable from holiness. Holiness is inseparable from obedience. Obedience is inseparable from knowledge, and knowledge is inseparable from Scripture. Scripture leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to obedience. Obedience leads to holiness, unquote. True worship of the Lord is shown in our obedience to him. Matthew 21, 28 through 32, Jesus tells the parable of the two sons, and the whole point of the parable is that doing is more important than saying. Doing is more important than saying. The wise man obeys the Lord. The worshipful person shows his love and worship through obedience to the Lord. He hears God's word and he acts on them. Now back to Matthew 7, 24. He longs to be obedient to the heavenly Father and by obeying, he is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Verse 25, and the rain fell, floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Now we look at verse 26. Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Destruction for the disobedient of the Lord, great destruction. One commentary I read states, quote, the house here represents a religious life. The rain represents divine judgment. Only the house built on the foundation of obedience to God's word stands. This obedience calls for repentance of sin, rejection of salvation by works, and trust in God's grace to save through his merciful provision, unquote. Wise man built his house on the rock, Christ himself. He built his house on Christ the rock. It's important to note that this is not legalism. The Wycliffe commentary reads, no works founded upon mere human effort are of any spiritual value, but faith in Christ the rock brings about that regeneration which manifests itself in godly living. A lady once said to the English preacher Roland Hill that she knew she was a child of God because she dreamed such and such a thing. Hill said to her, never mind, ma'am, what you did when you were asleep. Let us see what you do when you are awake. So... As we look at this passage, we're commanded to enter through the narrow gate, which is Christ, the only way of salvation, and the true believer strives on the narrow path. We see that there are many on the wide path. Many go through the wide gate following their false teachers. They believe anything. They don't love the Lord, and they don't show that by, and they uh, show that they don't love the Lord by saying, but not doing his will. 
Those on the wide path are sayers but not doers. And we see here, we are told to beware of the false prophets, the false teachers, and we see that the many on the wide path practice lawlessness. They love their sin. Verse 24, the wise man hears the word of the Lord and acts on them, stands through the storm. I said at the start that we would see three clear statements through this passage that Jesus said, clearly defining a narrow path person from a wide path person. We have picked up on this already. I know I'm hammering it, but it's pretty obvious here. Verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Then in verse 24, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. In verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them. Three times, three verses, obedience, obedience to the Lord. All right, what defines a, a narrow path person and a wide path person? These are not necessarily found in this passage. But let's start with the, the narrow path person, the one that um, believes in Jesus Christ. A narrow path person. What are some of his characteristics? This person knows and believes that Jesus is the only way of salvation. The only one who saved us from our sins is Jesus. He puts no trust in his own self or his own works. He mourns over his sin. He comes leaving everything behind. He squeezes through the narrow gate. He has no self-sufficiency. He is dependent on Christ and Christ alone. Number two, he hates his sin. Narrow path person hates his sin. He longs for mercy and to be saved from and free of sin and the guilt it brings. We see that also in Paul writing about himself in Romans 7.24, talking about his sin that he sees in him. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Psalm 51 is just a wonderful, wonderful prayer by David. After Nathan confronts him about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, and he also had her husband killed, Yet God called David a man after my own heart. I can't help but wonder that this would be a big reason why, why God called him a man after my own heart. When David is confronted by Nathan, Psalm 51 is his prayer to God. And I'm not going to read it. You need to go back through that. It's a beautiful prayer to pray ourselves, uh, looking at our own sin. It's the mark of a narrow path person. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Are we broken over our sin? A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God hates sin. The people on the wide path don't like to hear that. But do we hate our own sin? Do we, do we see, do we view our own sin as God does? Or are we broken over our sins? Or we just, do we just treat them lightly and flippantly? If we're on the right path as Christians... Um, we will see that we should sin less, but it hurts more as we continue to grow closer and closer to Christ. We sin less. It's a good sign, but it hurts more. Um, we see that God is sanctifying us as he changes us, and sin in our life decreases. We see less sin in our lives, but it hurts more because we grow closer to God and become more aware, like King David, of how God sees sin. I was talking with a good friend uh, just a few weeks ago, and he brought up a great point. He asked, what's the time span between our sin and our confession of that sin? Are we immediately aware of it and confess it and ask God to forgive us? Or do we let the hours and the days and weeks pass, never even think about it? 
a really good point. Number three, the follower of Jesus Christ is a new creature. He's a new creature. Psalm 51, create in me a new heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. He's a new person. Roland Hill once said he would not believe a man to be a true Christian if his wife, his children, the servants, and even the dog and cat were not the better for it. Great quote. I have to work on the cat thing. The narrow path follower of Jesus Christ doesn't love the things of the world. Number four, he's set apart, separate. Should be a clear distinction between a believer in Jesus Christ and an unbeliever, a worldly person. John 2, 15 through 17, you know this passage. Um, let me read that real quick. First John, First John 2, 15 and 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Pretty straightforward. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. There it is again, doing the will of God. True faith, true belief in faith in Jesus Christ manifests itself in righteous living. The one on the narrow path does not love the world. It's passing away in all its lust, but he looks forward to his heavenly home. One last point, the follower of Jesus loves God's word. He loves the word. We saw that obedience to God's word stated by Jesus three times clearly in the passage. How in the world can we obey his word if we don't even know it? He loves God's word. Psalm 1-2, he delights in the word. Let's look at the wide path person here. What are his characteristics? We can really go back and see the opposites of a narrow path follower. The wide path, the wide path person doesn't bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. Jesus is not his Lord and master. James 2, 18 and 19, but someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Satan and his demons believe everything that a Christian believes. They believe everything that a Christian believes, but the one thing that it's different is they don't bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. Jesus is not their master. Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, he is Lord. Number two, the white path person believes in his works for salvation, he believes he had something to do with his salvation to kind of help God. Luke 18, you know that, uh, the Pharisee and uh, the sinner's prayer. The Pharisee says, look what I do, Lord. He prays to himself. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes. The wide path person's a big talker. Lord, Lord. Number three about the wide path person, he believes everything. No discernment, no critical thinking. Luke 18, 9 says, they also trust in themselves that they were righteous. They look at other people and judge. They compare themselves to them. They remind God how good they are. Number four, sin is a light thing to a wide path person. He's self-righteous. He might actually believe he doesn't sin. He prays to himself in Luke 18. He likes to hear his own voice. Sin is a trivial thing. I signed on the dotted line years ago. I'm a believer. I'm saved. Come on, man. We believers are free of all that guilt and sin and stuff. 
They live and look more like the world than a follower of Christ. They went through the wide gate. They kept their sin because it fits. Plenty of room for it on the wide path. It fits easily through the wide gate to keep all the sin he loves. Wide path person is not fully committed to Christ. Well, following Christ is a full commitment. Jesus never wanted a follower of him unless they were all in. Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. Matthew 10, 37 through 39, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus always tried to deter the half-hearted. Matthew 16, 24 through 27, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a full commitment to Christ or none at all. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? You're saying, uh, I'm here. You're making me question my salvation. You have me worried. I might be on the wide path. You're making me doubtful and a little nervous. Good. Good. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? It's pretty clear. Philippians 2.12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The note on this verse in the MacArthur Commentary says, the Greek verb rendered work out means to continually work to bring something to fulfillment or completion. It cannot refer to salvation by works, but it does refer to the believer's responsibility for active pursuit of obedience in the process of sanctification. And fear and trembling is the attitude with which Christians are to pursue their sanctification. It involves a healthy fear of offending God and a righteous awe and respect for him, unquote. Well, maybe you struggle with this righteousness thing, like what is, it, what is okay to do and not do? I mean, come on, it's okay to do some things, right? This all sounds like legalism to me. I mean, what about like gray area things? I mean, what things are okay for a Christian to do? That's the thing that uh, Paul dealt with in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church wanted to say that they were believers and then take as much as the world with them. Tried to take as much as, as their old life with them. And Paul uh, said, such were some of you, meaning you're done with that life. Now there should be a difference. We're going to do a little examination here. This is kind of a fun test, I think. Um, we've gone through this a couple times in our Bible study regarding what things are okay for a Christian to do and I just love this test. And we've laughed about it, but it, I think it's a serious test. We call it the seven E's. We'll go through this quickly. The seven E's. What, what's okay for a Christian to do? First one, excess. Number one, excess. Do I need to do it or is it excess baggage? Number two, expedience. Is it useful? Will it help me? Emulation is number three. Is it something Jesus would do? Number four, evangelism. If I do this, is it going to enhance my testimony to an unbeliever? Number five, edification. Will it make me grow closer to Christ? Number six, exaltation. If I do this, will it exalt the Lord? And number seven, example. 
Will it set a right example of righteousness for my Christian brother? I have to admit, as we went through this a couple times in our Bible study, we started to laugh because things kind of disappeared out of our mind that we might do with, I think, by the time we got to the third one here. But I think it's a great test, and if, if you want to look at that more in depth, you can, you can see me and I can give you that list. Great thing to ask ourselves. Well, maybe today is the day the Lord will save you if you've never repented of your sin and believed and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Ask God for that salvation today. And what's God's heart for those who love him and long to follow him? Well, it's to be set apart, to be sanctified, to bear fruit, as John the Baptist said, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Psalm 4.2.3 says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I said at the beginning there's a sifting going on. I, I really believe it in the world and I don't think it has anything to do with politics. I think the Lord is, is using all of that, as he does, to find out where people stand. Where people stand. Are they going to truly follow him and love him and love his word and live a life that's pleasing to him? Or are they going to go other ways? It's an exciting time, though, too. I think it's an exciting time that, that we live in. Um, because God's calling out for us. He calls for the sinner to come to him because he's a loving, compassionate God and longs for everyone to come to him, to turn to him and be, sta be saved. The Bible says that God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone that dies, therefore repent and live. So if you haven't embraced the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I, I hope that you do soon. There's salvation through no one else. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, May we live in a way that's pleasing to him. May we live in a way that's pleasing to him. Let's pray. We're going to have the worship team come back up. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we've gone through a lot here. Um, but we see clearly, Lord, that we're to love your word. We're to be different from the world. We're to love them. But that, that doesn't mean that we... Sacrifice any parts of your word, Lord, or, or anything that is pleasing to you, Lord. We want to continue to leave in, live in a way that's pleasing to you. Change us, Lord. Sanctify us. Help us to look at our sin like you look at it. We just uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for salvation in your son, Jesus Christ, that you love the world and that you gave your son. You gave the ultimate sacrifice that by believing in him we might have eternity with you and be saved from our sins. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.